Morning. Hey, today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we're starting off a new sermon series called Relationship Goals. As we're going to be talking about how to have healthy relationships, have the wisdom for relationships. It's, it's hashtag relationship goals, which by the way is a really popular um, um, hashtag online. And you can go and look at really ridiculous relationship goals. Like, like I don't know why it's a relationship goal to take pictures where you're holding on to your wife and she's hanging over a cliff where she could die. I don't know why that's a relationship goal for some people, but that's what they're saying online. But I would tell you, be careful if you're gonna look at relationship goals because some of them are very inappropriate. But anyway, uh, there's some wisdom in scripture that today we're gonna start in. We're gonna be looking at wisdom for healthy relationships in this series. And so we're gonna be looking in the wisdom literature uh, of Scripture, there's some things, uh, some books that are known as the wisdom literature. There's Job. Someone includes Psalms. There's Proverbs. There's Ecclesiastes. There's Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And today we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. So this is what wisdom is according to Webster's Dictionary. It's this knowledge and the capacity to make due use of it. Right? It's not just the knowledge, but it's the ability to correctly use the knowledge that you have. Um, one writer um, I, I was reading as I was studying said it's real simple to define wisdom. The, that wisdom is the appropriate application of knowledge. It's simple to define, yet it's not always easy to comprehend, right? Like it's, it's one thing to be able to know what wisdom is, and it's another thing to actually use wisdom in your life. Like Song of uh, Solomon, who wrote Song of Solomon, Asked the Lord for wisdom, and he gave it to him. But I'm going to tell you this. He did not always use it. Actually, it seems he rarely used it. He had it, but he didn't always put it into to practice. You know, like, so it's the knowledge that you have and the ability to rightly apply it. So, like, you know, hashtags are popular. So one of the hashtags that are, are things you see sometimes is people love to post. Guys like to post something, and they have a picture of their wife, and they say, like, hashtag uh, smoking hot wife. If I wanted my wife to not talk to me for a week, I would make that post. She would be so furious at me. Like some of you though, you're married to somebody like, oh, I just feel so loved. My wife would be like, you're an idiot for putting that online for me. Like I didn't like that, right? Because I'm married to Wendy. And there's knowledge that I have about Wendy. And I have to learn how to apply that correctly. And that's wisdom. Wisdom's not just having knowledge. And wisdom's not necessarily having knowledge about someone else and thinking, oh, because this is true of this person, then I'm gonna use it, because this can also be true of that person. Does that make sense? Like, wisdom is to have knowledge and to rightly apply it. So today, wisdom is, the, is a key to a faithful life to the Lord, and it's free to all who ask for it. In James chapter one, verse five, we're taught this. If any of you lacks wisdom, which, by the way, that's an interesting statement in and of itself. If any of you lacks wisdom. I'm not sure why it says if. All right? Because all of you lack wisdom. That's what the scripture is saying. Because every single last one of us lacks wisdom. If you don't know that about yourself, you're not very wise. All right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Why is that important? Because sometimes when you're asking for wisdom, you're already in trouble. Sometimes when you're asking for wisdom, something's already a mess. 
You know what you're not going to get in trouble for? Asking for wisdom. You might still have to deal with the consequences of the bad decisions you already made. I'm not, I'm not saying that asking for wisdom does away with every poor decision you already made, but he's not going to get upset with you. Oh, now you're going to come to me, right? Like, no, he, this is what it says, and it will be given him. He will give it to you if you will ask him for wisdom. See, the issue with wisdom is not that there's a lack of availability of wisdom. I think there's a lack of desire for wisdom. Because when we ask for wisdom, we often do not get to do what we want. We can no longer do what we were planning to do. We can no longer handle that situation nor treat that person the way we were planning on handling that situation or treating that person. Not because it's wrong, but because it's not wise. See, wisdom is the ability to make those decisions about life where there's not an exact law about it. Right? Like, not everything in life has an exact teaching. Not every decision that you're going to make in life, are you going to go to a verse, you know, scripture in reference to a verse to know exactly what decision to make. But the Lord will give you wisdom if you will ask him. But you have to want it. Actually, uh, often in Proverbs, wisdom is personified and, and spoken of um, as if wisdom is a woman. All right? and, and Proverbs 1, 20 through 22, it says this. Wisdom, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raise her, raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? Another way to say how simple ones is how long, O oh foolish ones, will you love being foolish? It's not just that you're being foolish. You love being foolish. You're choosing to be foolish. You hear me. That's what she's saying. I'm over here screaming wisdom at you, and you're intentionally ignoring me because you love your foolishness instead of wisdom. And that's true of all of us. So let's look at Ecclesiastes. Let's learn a little bit just about Ecclesiastes before we get to Ecclesiastes 4. It starts with Ecclesiastes 1. Um, where it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, this is Solomon. And then he says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's your encouraging and uplifting word for the day. It's all vanity, there you go. It's all worthless, it doesn't really amount to anything. That's, That's how he starts the book of Ecclesiastes. And then he just kind of walks through, he says, you know, all this work, The generations, they come and go. The sun rises and the sun goes down. The wind blows from every direction, yet it's going nowhere. The streams all run to the sea, yet the sea is never filled. There's never enough hearing for the ears to be full or enough seeing for the eyes to be satisfied. Then in verse 9, it says this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun thought I'd keep encouraging you. There's just, this is life. There's just, and then he just walks the whole book. He just walks through all the things and he begins to show us how even the best of things can be a vanity. He talks about, um, well, I lost my spot. He talks about the, the vanity or the value of self-indulgence or of living wisely. He talks about of work or of 
time for everything of God and the tasks he's given us, the fact that we're from dust to dust, that there's a beginning and an end for us, that evil exists in the world. He talks about the difference between wisdom and folly, about authority and the vanity sometimes of having it, and authority and the vanity of not honoring it. He, he talks about death. He talks about enjoying life and love. He tells us to, to eat, drink, and be merry, to enjoy the things that God has created for us. And, and he talks about just ends with this truth. But I want you to understand, he just talks about how everything in life, everything in life can have this vanity or it can have value. But he ends with this truth in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. Honor him. Honor the Lord with everything. Here's, I want you to understand what sin is. Everything that God has given us has the capacity for value or for vanity. Everything in life is capable of either vanity or value. Everything. Everything in creation. It can be a vanity or it can be a value. You know what sin is? Is when we take what God has given to have value in our life and we use it for our own vanity. Sex outside of marriage is taking what God created to be valuable and using it for vanity. Being, being dishonest with money and with work. God created work and gave us the capacity to work. Work was a part of the Garden of Eden, not the part of the fall. He created it and gave it to us. And when we're greedy with it, what is, what is We're taking what he created to have value and we're making it a vanity. And everything in your life is capable of value or it's capable of vanity. It depends on how you see it and how you live. And what makes the difference is wisdom. Every relationship you have can be a value or it can be a vanity. Every relationship, student to teacher, to classmate, coach, to player, to teammate, co-worker, boss, subordinate, parent, child, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend. Every relationship can be a value or it can be a vanity. And there's practices and principles that apply to every relationship that if we'll use them, we can honor the Lord and all of them. Young people, I'm gonna give you one real quick. A real nugget of wisdom right here for you. You ready? If you're gonna date, when you start dating, never be someone else's regret. That's your goal. Never become their regret. Treat them in such a way that when you see them 10 years from now, that although it didn't work with you, you were good to them and they were good to you and you put a smile on their face and not more heartbreak in their heart. Never become their regret. There's wisdom for us to live by in Scripture, but we have to choose to want it. So I want to remind you of something that the Lord has said of us when it comes to relationships. In John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We, the followers of Christ, should be known by how we love others. We should be the example setters of relationships. 
The world should look at believers and go, that's how you make relationships work. That's how friendship's supposed to work. That's how co-laboring is supposed to work. That's how marriage is supposed to work. That's how being a part of a, of a community together and working for a common goal, that's how it should look. The church should always be the best at relationships. That should be us. This is how we should be known. In Ecclesiastes chapter four, starting in verse seven, we learn some truths about how to live this out. It says this, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other. I'm gonna stop there with this word for a second. I wanna help you understand what's being talked about in this passage. This other is the word for, it's literally the word to. Maybe the word second here. And, and this, this, this section of scripture is often called the problem of the second. That, that God has intended for us to have others in our life. And we're gonna look at several different ways where that can be considered. The first one is this. One person has no other. They have no second. Either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. And what had already been talked about, and this is about not having, not, not having someone to, to leave things to, not, not, to not have another in your life. And, and, and here's, what's already been talked about in Ecclesiastes is it's really sad to pass along what you have to a fool. But it's also a lack of wisdom to have no one to pass it along to. That you need a other in your life. Actually, we see an example of this in Scripture. Abram, who became Abraham, before he was given the promise that he would have a son, had adopted into his family a nephew named Lot. And he had a second. He had Another, even when he was talking to the Lord, he, he talked about one particular servant who was the closest to him out of all of them. And he had another, he was honoring this in his relationships as best he could. Did he want a son? Did he want someone from his lineage to pass it along to? Yes, but did he choose to have a second, a other in his life, even when he didn't have a son? Yes, why? Because he was a wise man. And wise people choose to have the other. It goes on to say this. Two are better than one. That's an easy, yeah, agreed? Two hamburgers are always better than one hamburger. I mean, two, like, if they offer a double cheeseburger, why would you order a single one? Like, that's just silly. If they order a triple one, keep going. I mean, however many they're willing to stack up. Right? I mean, why would you do that? Right? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. By the way, this word reward is really a return. Um, it's not just something you get like a reward. Like sometimes we get rewards for nothing. That's not this kind of reward. This is a return. The, the result of the toil has this reward. Does that make sense? They, they have a, a, re, a return for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another, a second, to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. We're gonna come to the beauty of that imagery of the three-fold cord here in a little while. And it goes on to say this, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Boy, it doesn't matter if you were once wise. If you ever get to the place where you no longer think you need advice, you have become a fool. 
For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will rejoice in him. Surely there is vanity and striving after the wind. This, this second, this other here, and this portion of the passage is this would be your successor, the one who would succeed the king. And you can choose to have a good relationship with him or a bad relationship, but it's up to the king. That's what he's saying here. But that middle part about the two is better than one is about the advantage of having a second, of having a healthy relationship. And the value of the second is the things that are shared. And sharing is not always easy. How many of you as parents have had to teach your children to share? Raise your hand if you had to teach your children to share. Anybody had to teach your children how to share? Some of you still working on that. Some of you going, if you know how to do that, I could use some advice, right? Teach your children to share. Anybody have to teach their children to be greedy? No. Came natural. And there's some things in particular I don't like sharing. So here's a few memes from, you know, social media. Tell somebody, all right, when your friend has your favorite food for lunch and doesn't want to share with you, could you be any more selfish? We saw the same menu. You could have ordered that food. I ordered that food. You eat your food. I'm eating my food. Amen? Because anybody agree? Like you saw that and you could have ordered that. I'm not sharing with you because this is me about food. I don't share food. I don't want to share my food. All right, so, so here's, here's another one. I, I just love this. this look, look, look how she's looking at that food. She has her own food. It's still sitting right there, but I want yours, right? Um, here's another one. No, that's not sweet. Get off of my spaghetti, right? Like, and, then, and then here's the last one uh, for us today. Um, she, she says she's not hungry, but she eats all your food. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, here's the problem, right? So if you go on dates, guys, I want to teach you a couple things real quick. Yes, she does want fries. She just doesn't want to order fries, all right? So I think they should make at all restaurants a date-sized fry. What size fry do you want? I want a date-sized fry. Well, what size is that? That's all the fries I want, plus enough fries for her to get what she wants, right? Like, because I ordered the amount of fries that I want to eat. I wasn't planning on sharing those fries, right? They offered you fries the same time they offered me fries. Not that Wendy's ever been guilty of that. She's not here today, so I can tell that story. And, but here's the other thing, guys. This is wisdom for you younger guys that are just starting out. When you're looking at the menu and you begin to have the conversation, what do you think about ordering? And you say what you're going to order. And she says, you know, I was thinking about getting that. Don't get that. Because she thinks you should share that <laughs> with her because she also thought about getting it. And here's my problem. If Wendy and I were considering getting the same thing and she didn't order it, when she went in the other direction, I have no desire to eat whatever she's ordering. Like that was probably the only thing on the menu that we both would have wanted to order. Whatever else she's ordering, I don't want any of it. But I hate to admit, I actually did this to her last night. Like last night, she got something I wanted. I ate a little bit. And I ate my whole pork chop, and she doesn't like pork chops, so I got the whole thing. So it worked for me, all right? Sharing food is only good when it's somebody else's, amen? So, but here's the thing that's really being talked about here, and let's, let's roll through it. It's this, is that we have common ground. In these relationships, there is a common ground that is shared. And I want to walk through what it is. The first one is there is a shared work. They're working together. The, the second thing that you see in these lives, not only do they share in a work, they have a shared watch for one another. If one falls down, the other's going to help them up. They're not just watching like, uh, you know, but they're watching out 
for one another. The third thing is there's a shared warmth. There's a shared resource. The fourth one is there's a shared war. If an adversary shows up, you're not alone. And I'm going to tell you this. You know what you need in your life? You need some relationships. That when the adversary shows up, you got some people who are going to fight till the fight is finished with you. We need these kind of relationships. We need to share this common ground with one another. This shared work, this is what it means. That there is a shared investment and there is a shared return. That's how wise people see relationships. They believe that that relationship is a place that they invest in and a person that they invest in and that they give to, but they also receive from and benefit from. But it's a two-way street. That's how healthy people see, wise people see every relationship. Every relationship you have, you should see it both as a place you are making an investment and receiving return. Now, not every relationship has instant return. Parents, stay at it. But that's how it works. That's just a healthy way to see relationships. I'm going to challenge you this. That's how you ought to see your church. All the relationships. Investment and return. You know, one of the things I say about church fairly often is this. You should never expect your church to be what you do not expect yourself to be. If you expect the church to be generous and you're being greedy, you should stop expecting your church to be generous. If you expect your church to be available and to care for people, but you're stingy with your time, you should stop expecting the church to be available. Like, the church is simply the collection of us. We can't do what we don't do. And sometimes that's how people see relationships. And no relationship should be that way. I'm going to tell you, even financially, like if, if you're going to show up and be a part of a church and you're going to drink the coffee and sit in the lights that are turned on and experience, you ought to be a part of investing in it because you believe to benefit from it. And it's just how healthy, wise people see every relationship. There is a shared work. The second thing that we see here is that there's a shared watch, that we're going to watch out for one another. If you fall down, I'm coming. It's not that you're never going to fall down, right? Like parents, if you ever, when you were teaching your kids to walk, watching them didn't prevent them from falling, right? They, people learning how to walk fall down. Sometimes somebody working hard in the field, every once in a while is going to fall down, but do they have somebody who will pick them up? The third thing is this shared warmth. It's uh, two lie down together, they stay warm together. There's a place in Scripture when David's getting old and he's getting cold, they, they find a, a young maiden to share um, the bed with him. By the way, in today's world, just buy an electric blanket. Come on, that's not the best idea. That's not how you go about that, all right? But, but you know what? Like, but these shared resources, this shared warmth, and then the shared war. Wise people wage war on behalf of their relationships to keep it right. They're proactive, not reactive. Wise people. Because they live out the commands of the Lord. They fear the Lord and do what he commanded. And what he commanded was, if there is an offense between two people, you offended them or they offended you. Do you know what scripture always tells you to do? It tells you to go to them. By the way, it tells you not to go to anyone else. Like, don't go talk about it to anyone else. Go to them. And see if you can be made right with your brother or sister. That's why we live out this wisdom. Why? Because this relationship, you and I, is worth fighting for. I'm not just going to be reactive. I'm going to be proactive in this 
relationships. See, wise people discover, develop, and defend healthy relationships. Wise people discover, develop, and defend healthy relationships. They, they find common ground, and then they develop that common ground. They, um, they found the relationship on that common ground. They develop what they share in common, and then they defend it. They, they fight for it. They, they keep it. See, it's a wonderful thing to discover a common and beautiful relationship, but it's real work to develop a deep and authentic relationship. We discover connection and what is in common, but we develop what is delightful and beneficial. And then we defend what is deep and dear to us. But it starts off with the fact that we have something in common. I want you to understand something. We have the relationships we have because people are of benefit to us and we are of benefit to people. A lot of you go, oh no, people just love me because I'm me. Yeah, maybe not. Like we are of benefit to each other. Like that's not a bad thing. That's how life works. We're, we're, we're good for each other. And there's something that starts out with this commonness. Like your best friend became your best friend because somehow you ended up in common together. Like, I have this lifelong best friend named Shane Breland. And you know why we're best friends? Because we went to Emmanuel Baptist Church preschool together. And then we went to kindergarten together in first grade and second grade and, and all the way through. And, and, and you know, we, but we're not the same. Like in high school, I was playing ball and stuff and he was a, uh, a, on the debate team, super smart. Like every year, he would go to the social study and science like state fair. Like his, his project always went to the state level. I never got invited for some reason, right? Like, right, we didn't have all this in common. But you know what? At my wedding, he was my best man, and at his, I was his. He's my best friend. I hadn't seen him in years. And I'll tell you what, if I called Shane Breland today and said, I need you, he'd move heaven and earth to get here. We started with something that was common, then we built upon it. He also went to the same church as me, by the way. We have a shared foundation in Christ, which we're about to get to. Right? This is how relationships work. This is how friendships work. This is how marriage works. And, and I was recently listening to a sermon series after I decided to do hashtag relationship goals. I looked up sermon series that had already done that. And Craig Rochelle preaches a great one on marriage, by the way, if you want to go check it out. And one of his, his main point in his first one is that you should live christ Centered. And as I listened to it, I thought about how great it was, but there was one struggle for me. And it was this What about the person in the room who's living a life that's Christ centered, but their spouse is not? What's the hope? And, and I want to tell you this is that, that we live in a world where God created us to have healthy relationships. The best relationships are the one where the cord of three strands cannot be easily broken, where there's us and our spouse and the Lord, there's us and our friend and the Lord, and we share that together where we're Christ-centered. But the truth is, th there's two things that we need to understand about grace. There's God's general grace and there's God's specific grace. And God's specific grace saves us, but God's general grace allows everyone to experience his goodness. And you know what? You don't have to love Jesus to appreciate the beauty of a sunset. But when you love Jesus and you see the beauty of a sunset, it helps you worship the one who set the sun. So it's deeper and better for us, but God still gave them the beauty, the beauty to understand it. And so people can have good relationships that are not Christ-centered. 
And a lot of times, if we're not careful, we act like they can't. And we all know some people who've been married a really long time and get along really well, and they're not serving Jesus. Now, what would that relationship look like, though, if those two people were serving Jesus? If it was Christ-centered? Because the best relationships are not two strands, they're three strands. Those are the ones that that are the hardest to break. But this is why we have to be the example of what healthy relationships look like. Because I'll tell you this, you should bring, bring the Christ-centeredness to every relationship you're in. We should be the best at relationships. Even with those who we don't share Christ with. But when we do share Christ with them, we have this Christ-centered common ground. And this is where the best relationships are found because you find a shared faith. See, a shared faith develops a shared foundation. When you share that faith, you have the same foundation. Some of you are here today and you don't share the foundation of Christ with your spouse. You do share the foundation of marriage with your spouse. But I believe this. I believe God wants to use you so that your spouse would know him. But when two both love Christ, they have this shared faith, therefore they have this shared foundation. And here's what a shared foundation does. A shared foundation deepens our shared faith. When you share that foundation, man, you can cause and and experience the benefit of growing in your faith as they grow in their faith because you share Jesus together. And that, that cord of three strands is not easily broken. Man, that we have to desire this, that we should want Christ-centered relationships. You need some Christ-centered friendships in your life. Young people, you need to develop some Christ-centered friendships. And this is what that means, is you need some friends who love you and love Jesus. What makes a great marriage is when a husband loves Jesus and a wife loves Jesus and a husband and a wife love each other. You know, but sometimes our problem is when we want to fix our marriage We want to focus on fixing the marriage and we don't change us. And if you want to have Christ-centered relationships, if you want to have relationships that are relatively Christ-centered, then your life needs to become intensely Christ-centered. You're going to have to chase after Jesus with your life. So if, if a husband and wife want to have a healthier relationship, here's what you do. Both of you grow in your love for Jesus together. If you want to have great friendships, then grow. Both of you grow in your love for Jesus together. If you want to have a great and healthy business partnership, then find a business partner who wants to grow in their faith in Jesus and y'all serve the Lord together in your business. That's how healthy relationships are established. They're christ Centered, but I want you to understand something. There's a huge difference between, between being Christian and Christ-centered. I'm not asking you, did you, have you professed Jesus as Lord? I'm asking you, this is what we're talking about. Are you living your life every day in the fear of God and keeping his commands? And every relationship is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. See, if we're not careful, we think, well, I need to do that in my marriage, but it doesn't matter when I go to work. I'm going to tell you this, if you're not that person at work, you're going to have a hard time being that person when you get home. We have to be intensely Christ-centered in our life. 
And if we will do that, we'll have these beautiful relationships built on the common ground of Jesus Christ who died for us, who has given us freedom and hope. But have you come, if you're going to experience this, have you come to the reality of your life's own vanity? Here's what I mean by that question. Have you realized that your righteousness is nothing more than a filthy rag before a holy God? That your very best can't make you right with him? But the, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, sent his one and only son who lived a perfect life, died a death he did not deserve and was raised from the dead so that you who deserve that death could be given life. But you have to come to grips with your own vanity that you might understand and experience the value, the salvation and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. See, the best relationships are discovered, developed, and defended by those who have a relationship with Christ. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save us. It's founded upon Jesus because the reason why we love him is because he first loved us. And we fight for healthy relationships because he fought for a right relationship with us and he was obedient to death even death on a cross that he conquered hell and death and the grave so that you might have a right relationship with him and that's the foundation that we all need if you've never come to that place of faith today as we sing this next song myself some other leaders are gonna be standing up here we'd love to talk to you about that i don't want to just give you wisdom for your earthly relationships i want you to have a right relationship with your heavenly father if you're nervous about walking up in front of everybody, we'll hang out for a little while as service ends. You can come and find us. But we're about to sing this song together. Worship the Lord. Y'all stand now. Let's pray. Father God, I pray right now that you receive all glory and honor in this moment. Father, if there's anyone in this place that does not know the hope and grace that's found in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would show to them the vanity of their own life without you but yet show to them the value that they have to you. That you loved them so much that you gave your only son for them, that they might respond to your love today, that, they, that you might change their eternity. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.